Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wayward Podcast, where there is a word, there is a way. I hope that you are all having a good day. I hope that your December has gotten off to a really good start. And I have a little bit of an interesting question to start off the episode with. If you had to pick between the two, would you rather have lots of snow or lots of cold? Uh, Me, I was born in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, so I grew up with lots of both. And I know that we don't get to pick the weather, we just have to live with it. But if if I had to pick, I think I would pick the cold over the snow. Because with snow, I have to shovel and maybe even have to slip on the the ice or the the hardened, caked-up snow and slip, fall, fall on my knees, fall on my back, fall on my face. But with the cold, I can just put on warm, cozy clothes and drink my coffee. So, yeah, I like the snow. Uh, I like the snow when it's fresh and beautiful and... It's falling all quietly and soft, and it looks like a painting. But from day to day, I I kind of I think I would prefer the cold, with the condition, however, that I still get to see the sun. Um, Gloomy days make the cold seem colder, harsher, but sunny days make the cold feel like a refreshing adventure, like everything is possible. Today is a new day. But whatever the case, whatever your answer, I hope your December has gotten off to a really good start. So, well, I forget how the Advent uh, calendar plays out, the the church calendar, how the days of Advent and all the different verses and the readings and everything. I forget how that all plays out. But as far as this podcast goes, we are about two episodes in to our um, Advent series. Today will be our third, and in our first episode, I don't know if you had a chance to listen to those. If you do, I really encourage you to go back and check those out, but in our first episode, we were able to explore how the early first century land of Judea was shaped by world history and its regional history and how many of the cultural and leadership developments had created an environment or atmosphere that was so burdened with the world's kind of power that this time and place was just saturated with a heavy sense of hopelessness. And in the second episode, we were able to take a closer look at how that hopelessness had been personally experienced by a priest named Zechariah. And then we were able to look at how God began to insert hope into this man's life. Hope that would eventually be for the whole land and would anticipate the fuller and richer hope God would bring into the world. So thus far, we have been looking at the settings of hope. But today, finally... 
we begin to get a clearer look at the specific shape and substance of that hope, of the salvation hope God is ushering into the hopeless world. So, are you ready? I'm ready. So, let us begin. And let us begin with the word Advent itself. The word Advent means coming or arrival. But more specifically, in the context of the, of the Advent stories, it means someone is coming. And he is bringing something with him. In our passage from last week, when the angel Gabriel appeared to Zechariah, he kind of conveyed a vaguely shaped rumor of this coming by speaking of how Zechariah's son would prepare the people for the Lord. But now it is time to confirm and clarify those rumors of hope with a revelation of good news. So to an ordinary girl in an ordinary town, the angel Gabriel will now proclaim someone and something extraordinary. Our text begins in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Um, all right, in verse 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. So in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God executes the next phase of his sovereign strategy by sending the angel Gabriel to a small, know-nothing town called Nazareth to a girl named Mary, who is engaged to a guy named Joseph, who belongs to the line of David. And if you recall the First Testament, David was Israel's greatest king and the king with whom God made a covenant for the sake of Israel's future. And Gabriel greets Mary by calling her favored indicating that God has bestowed upon her his bountiful grace. And her response is that she is, understandably, perplexed. And she ponders what this is all about. But the tone of the text makes her seem that, despite cautiousness, she is also curious. And I believe that there is an open-heartedness here that we didn't see with Zechariah. The contrast between Mary and Zechariah helps show us that a heart that is open to what God offers is a heart that is ready to be a part of what God is doing. So with those details clarified a little bit, let's dive into the angel's message. In verse 30, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. 
and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So the angel begins by telling her not to be afraid, which makes sense, because when both Zechariah and Mary encountered this angel, their first thought was probably that God's judgment or death was about to follow. So, yeah, the angel had to start with, do not be afraid. And after repeating how God has leaned in towards her to envelop her with his magnificent grace, Gabriel clarifies his message to her. And his message basically consists of two good news truths. And those two gospel truths are, someone is coming and something is coming with him. Now let's begin with that someone. Normally when this passage gets preached, the question gets asked of, can you imagine what Mary must have been thinking? Here she is, a young, vulnerable, precocious girl being told that she'll become pregnant. And maybe she's wondering, what will Joseph think? Will he break off the engagement? Will her family disown her? Will the neighbors stone her? And I can appreciate those kinds of questions and statements because they're trying to think contextually. But when I think, or when I look at this, I think the sheer scale and weight of this message was larger than any other concerns. Being told that she would have a baby is one thing. But when you consider the implications of this baby's identity compared to the backdrop of the world Mary knew, it stops being about the shock of the message, and it starts being about the story the message is telling. And the story this angel's message is telling is God's salvation story. We have already discussed how this world is a world occupied by dark powers which have laid waste and claim to it with its violent definitions of peace. Mary knows how the iron fists of these dark, oppressive powers have forced their will upon the world, plunging the land into a heavy sense of hopelessness. So when Mary learns the name of her baby, a name that means the Lord saves, she knows the story of God's salvation hope is about to begin in her. She knows the angel is talking about God's Messiah, the chosen servant who has been promised to save Israel. And the language the angel uses to describe her child's future is very messianic. First, the angel said that the child will be great. Now, in these times, great implied greatness. It wasn't like some sort of sarcastic, you know, oh, that sounds great, you know. It, it, it really meant great. Like, for example, historical figures like Alexander the Great, Antiochus Epiphanes, was considered 
the Great. And here in Mary's time, you had Herod the Great. The word implied power, authority, and influence. It was a word used of rulers. Second, the angel said the child would be the son of the Most High. And this is a phrase that Luke uses often to paternally connect the God who reigns in the highest heavens to the person of Jesus. So he is saying that this child would image forth the God who rules over all. And third, the angel says the child will be given the throne of his ancestor David. Now, back in the text of 2 Samuel 7, God made a covenant with David that someone from his line would always sit upon the throne. And in later generations, God promised that Israel would be saved through a chosen servant from the line of David. So this line about David's throne to Mary assures her that the salvation God will achieve through her child will be the work of God's royal figure. So overall, the words that the angel uses to depict this someone who is coming are descriptions of a king. The someone that is coming is a king. And the something that is coming with him is a kingdom. In verse 33, the angel said, He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Through the centuries, the 12 tribes of Israel had become by this point, so decimated and dispersed that the inhabitants of Judea really only ever thought of themselves as the house of Jacob when they were looking to the past to help nurture hope for the future. So by taking that idea and merging it with the prophet Daniel's imagery of how this child's kingdom will have no end, the angel is envisioning this promised king and his kingdom as God's restoration of Israel. The broken family mended and healed and finally made whole. Now, I know that this can all sound a bit fantastical or end-timey, and I admit that the language is a bit eschatological, which is fine. But the fact that the angel promises God, or I'm sorry, the fact that the angel promises Mary that God is about to insert his king into a very real history characterized by hopelessness clarifies this idea of kingdom as a very real actuality. A very real king is coming. And his actions will inaugurate a very real kingdom reality. A very real hope. The hope God is ushering in is tangible. It has real substance. 
And to all of this, in verse 34, Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? Now, unlike Zacharias's doubting tone, Mary's tone is curious how this will functionally play out or take shape. And in verse 35, the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. Incarnation is the word we use to describe this event, where God's Holy Spirit presence descends from the heavens, surrounds Mary, and miraculously conceives in her a child who, while human, is also divinely other. Now, I know that this idea, that hope from heaven taking real and tangible shape on earth, is an idea that we can struggle with for all sorts of reasons. In the days of Luke, there was there was an idea or there was a there was a resistance to the merging of the spiritual and the physical, because the physical was viewed as too corrupt or too tainted to be involved with the spiritual. And in our day, while that separation between physical and spiritual can still exist. In a way, I think it's been reversed, that we live in a world that either rejects or denies or demystifies the spiritual. And what I think the struggle to merge the spiritual and the physical does, ultimately, is condition us to hesitate or be resistant to the hope God offers us. And I think a little bit of that struggle can be seen at work in how Zechariah was thinking. And I think that even Mary is aware of really how absurd this scenario sounds, since she actually asked, how can this be, since I am a virgin? I think she's curious, but I think she's also kind of navigating through caution. And really, I think the angel is aware of this too. The angel knows this sort of thing doesn't happen. And so the angel adds on a little encouragement to his message, saying in verse 36, And now your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month for her who was said to be barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Here in this line, it's almost as if the angel has anticipated Mary's caution or Mary's, uh, you know, um, skepticism or or maybe the the, the inherent skepticism that accompanies Mary's curiosity. And it's as if the angel has already anticipated that and is responding by saying, yeah, I normally I, I know that this normally doesn't happen, except that it has already been happening. And it's happening because God is not limited 
God can powerfully create at will. The creator can create. Now, whether we accept the angel's explanation or not is something that we must wrestle with in our own journey with God and his word. Mary's response, however, was really pretty quite swift. In verse 38, it says that then Mary said, Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. Mary's initial reaction to the angel was caution. And then her next response after that was kind of a question of curiosity. Now, here, at the angel's conclusion, Mary responds with consent. She will let both her body and her name be used for the accomplishing of God's salvation. She will allow her life to be a living host of God's hope. The angel has revealed to her that God's hope is not immaterial, but possesses real, actual substance. And that her life is going to serve to give shape to the substance of God's salvation hope. And Mary's response is, I will serve. Here am I. So how might we learn from this story today? What wisdom does Mary offer us? I suggest we start with Mary's own responses. I mentioned a moment ago that Mary's initial or that Mary initially responded with like uh, confoundedness or caution. And honestly, that is not a bad place to be, especially since that's where a lot of people are at anyways. A lot of people live their lives on alert or cautiously. And instead of demonizing that by saying things like, don't be a doubter or doubt kills, let's learn to accept that there are reasons that people develop cautionary hearts. The heaviness of this world and the hopelessness it nurtures has given people a lot of reason to live cautious lives. So let's appreciate and accept that. But having said that, the difference between what Zechariah did with his caution and what Mary did with her caution shows us that it's what we do with that caution that determines what it ultimately does to us and what we're ultimately willing to do with the hope that God offers us. Mary's second response she moved from caution to curiosity, which I may, th I really think it was more in line with where her heart was at all along. By asking the angel how this pregnancy would take place, 
she displays an openness to what God has declared, or an interest in how this will play out. Whereas Zechariah voiced excuses or assumptions that inherently limited God, Mary voiced inquisitiveness that sounds intrepid or brave. And if we align our faith with Mary's, we might find ourselves in a place where we are eager or happy or excited to participate in what God is doing. Maybe if we apply that discipline to the way we read Scripture, we might find within ourselves a newly empowered capacity for loving and serving our neighbors boldly and with daring. And then Mary's third response, her consent, it encourages us, I think, to let go of whatever resistance may be holding us back from giving God and his kingdom mission our very best. Letting go of that resistance and consenting to what God wants to do allows our lives to be living hosts of God's kingdom hope. I wonder how many of us really spend our lives or our years restraining ourselves for whatever reason, from the good that God has designed us for. And when I look at Mary's example here, I hear her wisdom telling me, when God calls you, don't hold back. Let yourself and your life get caught up in the goodness he wants to accomplish through you. And here in this Advent season, as we celebrate the king and his kingdom who has come and is still coming, that truth that exists in creation and in history and in community is in and of itself God's calling. The king's arrival is God's calling on our lives to each of us. And Mary here has shown us how to respond. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but there is an internet picture that kind of makes the rounds every Advent season. And the picture is of Eve in the garden with the serpent wrapped around her shoulders. And she is standing across from Mary, who takes Eve's hand and places it on her own pregnant stomach. And the idea is that just as Eve was instrumental in ushering in creation's corrupted state or a tendency to live corruptedly, she may now find redemption because Mary is instrumental in ushering in creation's redemption. So as we wrap up this episode today, 
And as we think about this wonderful woman who helped give birth to God's king and kingdom, let us look for ways in which we might live our lives as living hosts of the king and kingdom who have come and are still coming. As we say, where there is a word, there is a way. So as we finish off here today on the Wayward Podcast, I just want to encourage you by saying, where our lives become living hosts of God's hope, there others will encounter the reality of God's kingdom. I hope you have a blessed day. Mm -hmm.